Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Welcome back. Today we are talking about induction of labor. This is something you guys will see a whole lot of pretty much regardless of where you do your rotation. There are lots of reasons we do inductions of labor and there are lots of ways to do an induction of labor. So today we're going to talk about the broad strokes and the evidence-based approach to both scheduling and determining when somebody needs an induction and also um, actually the procedure of doing the induction. So first, why do we do them? Um, We do them to prevent any adverse outcomes for either mom or baby. So any of the indications for an induction are going to be based around either the most common and sort of obvious one is an increased risk of stillbirth. Stillbirth being sort of one of the worst outcomes, obviously. Um, Prevention of stillbirth. So if somebody asks you, why do we do an induction of labor at X gestation for Y condition? A very educated guess would be to reduce the risk of stillbirth for just about any indication. Um, So let's go through some of the terms around timing of induction and then the reasons why we do them. So indication, or sorry, not indications, but the terms around when we do them. If somebody says somebody is coming in for what's called a post-dates induction, this indicates they are more than two weeks past their due date. So 42 plus weeks. Um, When I first started medical school, this was the standard of care in a lot of places. Um, Giving people up to two weeks past their due date to try and increase the chance of spontaneous labor and reduce the... um, the number of people undergoing induction of labor. This has now shifted um, in the 10 plus years since I've been doing this. We are now moving more and more towards the due date or even a week before. Um, So for a while, it was 42 weeks. Then it moved to what's called late term um, or 41 weeks, um, as this was shown to maybe decrease the risk of um, complications both for mom and um, particularly C-sections, hypertensive disorders, things like that. And then even more recently, we've been moving towards 39 weeks for um, some people. And this is is called either a 39-week induction, or you'll hear some people call this an elective induction. Um, I prefer the term 39-week induction simply because, well, one, that's what it is. And two, there's some medical evidence for this. So I don't view this as fully elective. Um, All right. Why? What medical conditions make us do inductions? Some of the most common ones you're going to see for people are going to be hypertensive disorders. So particularly hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, um, preeclampsia, gestational hypertension, um, superimposed preeclampsia. All of these are going to indicate delivery earlier than your due date. Most of them are going to indicate delivery at 37 weeks or whenever you diagnose it, if you diagnose it after 37 weeks, Um, unless they are also accompanied by the words with severe features. And we talked about how you make all these different diagnoses in another podcast on hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. So if you have a hypertensive disorder with severe features, that is an indicated deliver at 34 weeks um, or whenever you make the diagnosis, if you make the diagnosis after 34 weeks. Um, There are so many, many indications for induction. And so um, in the show notes, there's a link out to the ACOG medically indicated delivery, which has um, a summation of the most common medical indications for delivery. This is by no means exhaustive. There are so many um, odd reasons that we do a medically indicated delivery um, before 39 weeks, um, but that is sort of the conditions that have the strongest evidence for deliveries before 39 weeks. 
All right. So um, let's talk a little bit about a 39-week induction. As I hinted already, some people call this an elective induction, but I prefer to call it a 39-week induction. You'll see some debate about this in the literature if you really want to get into it, um, but I'll call it a 39-week induction from here on out. So this all came about um, after the ARRIVE trial. The ARRIVE trial was a very large, multi-center, randomized controlled trial um, that came out in, what was it, 2018 or thereabouts? Um and it looked at whether or not we should be sort of the risks or benefits of 30, inducing women or pregnant people around 39 weeks um, versus expected management uh, up until around 41 weeks. The people included in this trial were um, people who had never had a vaginal delivery before nor a C-section, and they had no indication for a medical for no medical indication for an induction prior to 40 weeks and five days. Um, if they elected to participate in the trial, they were then randomized to either undergo induction around 39 weeks and zero days to 39 weeks and four days, or expectant management up until 40 weeks and five days, all the way up to 42 weeks and two days. The main outcomes they were looking at, they were looking at a composite neonatal outcome to see if there were any neonatal complications or any increased risks to babies. That had been one of the primary arguments that um, people had used for years. Babies aren't, quote, fully cooked at this point, so we shouldn't be intervening to induce um, pregnant people at 39 weeks if the babies aren't ready. Um, so looking at a composite neonatal outcome and then looking at some maternal outcomes. One of the big um, maternal outcomes is C-section rate. For a long time, the narrative had been that, C that inductions increase your C-section rate. So we wanted to get to the bottom of whether or not this was true. It does an induction increase your risk of C-section because um, obviously that's it's a major abdominal surgery. Nobody wants a C-section, not an OB, not a patient. Very, you know, it is it is never our first choice. Um, so what happened in the trial? So the induction, the results showed that the induction group had a lower C-section rate than the expectant management group. Um, this flew in the face of a lot of observational trials that had published previously, but this is now the largest randomized controlled trial for this, um, and so is as um, and also the largest trial. So this is now um, the best evidence we have. So the, this showed the induction lowered the rate of C-sections. Um, the neonatal composite outcome had a trend, but it was not statistically significant, but a trend towards lower needle, neonatal complications in the induction group as well. Um, the conclusions they drew was that an induction at 39 weeks is safe, is as safe as expectant management without any obvious increased risk, and it may actually provide some decreased risks and benefits to patients. Um, and so the practice implication for us is that now many pregnant people are now offered at 39-week inductions rather than waiting for spontaneous labor. But this is institution-dependent. This is staffing-dependent. This is we don't want to ever cause harm to people with more urgent delivery needs um, by overbooking inductions. So you'll see a lot of institutions have a lot of rules around how this can be done to try and minimize workflow issues for staff and make sure that we are not overfilling our labor and delivery units and potentially causing any harm to anybody by not having enough hands on deck to take care of everybody. So when you are on labor and delivery, um, your institutions may have slightly different procedures for this, but a lot of them will have set times where, where 39-week inductions or medical inductions will come in at a specific time. Um, and so you'll be able, there'll be a place where you can check. And so somebody will arrive for their medical or um, 39 week induction. They'll show up and they'll say, Hey, med student, why don't you go help begin the process of checking this patient in? So things you need to think about before we can begin an induction 
pretty similar to the things you need to be thinking about when you're admitting somebody in labor. Um, so first we need to go through their full history and physical. We need to make sure that there's no medical um, complications that we need to be aware of that could be changing our management in, preg- in labor. For example, diabetes, we got to make sure we're getting them on the diabetes protocols, Change, make sure they have the appropriate fluid orders, things like that. But let's say this is just a 39-week induction and we're just making checking this patient in um, and getting things going. So you're going to run through their full history and um, with them, make sure there's no changes to their medical history. And that's usually how I do it. Your medical record should have pretty much all their information. So you're just going to say any changes, any new medications, any new diagnoses. Um, you're going to probably get the ultrasound in the room if you are comfortable and know how to do so. Um, because pretty much everybody's going to get an ultrasound to make sure that the fetus is in vertex position or presenting with the head first. If baby is in any other position, if baby is sideways, breech, butt down, any of those things, this is not an appropriate candidate for an induction. Then once you have your resident or your attending physician with you, we're going to be checking their cervix. We need to know what their cervix is to plan the most appropriate method of induction. There are a bunch of different ways we can do inductions. And there's two main um, steps. Uh, the first one is seeing if the cervix is ready. So if the cervix is ready and you have what's called a favorable cervix, meaning the cervix is soft, it's open a little bit already, um, it's seems to have gone through its prep work to be ready for um, opening, then you can jump ahead to um, creating more painful contractions with things like Pitocin. A lot of um, people who come in for their induction, they are not going to be fully ready for labor. So what we're going to do first is called cervical ripening. And um, cervical ripening is going to be a process of both mechanical and chemical um, preparation of the cervix, most typically. So... To decide if somebody needs the cervical ripening, when we check their cervix, we list out, you'll hear us say a whole bunch of things, right? You hear us say the dilation, you hear us say the effacement or the percentage of shortening of the cervix, um, the station, how high or how low the fetal head, um, or really the biparietal diameter of the fetal head is in relation to the pubic bones um, and the maternal pelvis. And then the cervical, you'll hear two other things in this particular exam. You'll hear the, hear the cervical consistency typically. Is it firm? Does it feel like your hard fist? Is it medium? It's kind of like um, a firm dough or um, a firm slime, or is it super soft? Is it um, warmed up Play-Doh that's already been played with and it's ready to just sort of melt away? We We'll um, classify the consistency in one of these three ways. Then we're going to talk about the position of the cervix. When the cervix is not ready for labor, it is tucked back behind, um, closer to the coccyx. When um, the cervix is prepared for labor, it's got it's the fetal head is descending, it's putting pressure on it. The cervix actually comes forward and becomes easier for us to find, um, and starts, begins aiming towards the pelvic outlet. Um, and this is just by force by the force vectors. Um, creating a more straight line exit for uh, the fetus. So you'll hear us say all five of those things, the dilation, the effacement, the station, the cervical consistency, and the position of the cervix. There's then something called a a bishop scoring system in which we will assign points to each of those things, and then they will get a score, an overall score. So to decide if somebody needs cervical ripening, if the bishop score is less than eight, and this person has never had a vaginal delivery before, they need cervical ripening. If if they're multip or about to be multip, they've had at least one vaginal delivery before and their score is less than six, they need mechanical or um, chemical cervical ripening. So we will jump ahead to doing that cervical ripening and then wait on the Pitocin.
most commonly. commonly. So the chemical portion of the ripening is typically something called mesoprostol. Um, there are other forms of prostaglandins that can be used, but they are uh, a bit more expensive. And so mesoprostol is probably the most commonly used. This is a teeny tiny pill. It is the same mesoprostol that you'll hear us use for um, missed abortions, meaning unrecognized miscarriages, um, therapeutic abortions, um, and postpartum hemorrhage. Those are the most common uses. Uh, occasionally, you'll see people use it to prepare the cervix for things like IUDs or hysteroscopies, but that's a lot less common. The evidence is a little bit more mixed on that. So we'll use mesoprostol, um, and then most commonly, we'll do that alongside some type of balloon or mechanical dilation. So the um, quick and dirty version is a Foley catheter. Yes, a urinary Foley catheter. We can um, use our hands to place this up through the cervix, fill up that balloon the same way you would fill it up in the bladder, and then we tape it to tension to the leg so that balloon slowly pulls and stretches the cervix open. Um, some people fill these up to 30 cc's, which would stretch your cervix open to about three to four centimeters. Um, other people do 60 or 80, more similar to the um, name brand cervical ripening catheter called a Cook catheter, um, and that will get you closer to five, six centimeters open no great evidence to say which one is better. So it seems to be mostly institutional preference and then also supply. Um, so typically those two things are done together. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody who is like right on the borderline of switching from, um, of being, you know, fully ripened. And so they'll do a balloon with say Pitocin rather than doing the mesoprostol. Um, or if somebody's having too many contractions or has contraindications to mesoprostol, you may see us jump ahead to Pitocin. The most common contraindications to mesoprostol are going to be either too many contractions, uh, because mesoprostol we can't take back once it dissolves, so that can cause what's called tachycystole or too many contractions, um, or a scar on the uterus. Um, so prior C-section, a prior myomectomy, things like that. We don't like to use mesoprostol for their induction purposes because it can increase the risk of those scars opening up and becoming an emergency. Um, if somebody is already has a quote-unquote ripe cervix, you know, that Bishop score is either six for a multip or eight for a prime or higher, then they just scoot right ahead to Pitocin. And we just do enough Pitocin typically to get baby low enough that we can break the water. Called an AROM or an artificial rupture of membranes. Uh, multiple um, high-quality randomized controlled trials have looked at early AROM versus delayed AROM um, in inductions and have shown that there is benefit, shorter duration to delivery, no increased risk of um, C-section or uh, no significant increased risk of um, chorioamnionitis or infections with just early AROM alone. So we typically do early AROM to to expedite delivery. Um, each of these things, though, is a small procedure. So you will also hear us consenting, verbally consenting, patients for each one of these small procedures that we are doing, because each do have small um, risks. But if somebody has already gone through the process of consenting for an induction, we've typically talked about all these things, because all of these things can become necessary in the process of an induction. Um, so typically, by the time they've come in for the induction, they may have already been consented in the office, but you'll probably hear us just verbally confirm with patients that they are okay with all these things. Once we get to the Pitocin portion, there are a lot of different Pitocin algorithms out there. The, the intricacies are not um, important for you guys to know at this stage, um, but your, pro your institution will just have a protocol. The nurses will go up if the patients meet the protocol. For somebody to fail their induction and need a C-section, um, well, first, along the way, there could be other reasons for induction or for a C-section. You could have non-reassuring fetal heart tracing. You could um, have a prolonged D-cell, things like that. 
But the um, other more common reason is what's called a failed induction or failure for that induction process to get the person into labor. And so there's a couple different definitions out in the literature for this. The most common is a failure to reach active labor or have cervical change after 18 plus hours ruptured with ruptured membranes and on Pitocin. The definition primarily varies between 12 and 24 hours um, for when you meet that failed induction. So some institutions will um, err towards the 12 hours ruptured on pit, is what you'll hear us say, versus 24 hours ruptured on pit. Um, if the person does reach active labor, if they become six centimeters dilated, they are no longer meeting criteria for failed induction. Now they put, would potentially, the next criteria they would meet would be an arrest of dilation, um, meaning if they make it to six centimeters, they should be making change every four to six hours. Um, and then can be, um, if they don't make change within four to six hours, then they can, um, we could recommend a, a C-section for arrest of dilation. We go through sort of the intricacies of those types of things in the um, your first C-section podcast when we talk about reasons for your first C-section. So I think there's a separate one, actually, indications for your C-section. Um, we go through sort of the definitions of each of those in a little bit more detail. But for this one, I just wanted to go over the failed induction because it is a little bit variable depending on your institution. A safe answer is you could be inclusive 12 to 24 hours ruptured on pit if anybody asks you what a failed induction is, um, or you can meet in the middle and just say on average 18 hours ruptured on pit, um, but know that there is some variance there. All right, that's all I got for you on inductions. If you guys have questions or comments, let me know. Otherwise, have a great day. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a procedure ready or clerkship ready podcast for their specialty, pass along their information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at procedureready.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.